Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. There's been a lot of focus on whether the U.S. labor force will recover. Just one consequence in the pandemic that disrupted so many lives. The Labor Department saying the nation added 531,000 jobs in October, but the number of job openings remain near record highs. And of the sectors that have lost jobs, none have recovered pre-pandemic levels. Now, earlier this year, economists pointed to millions of Americans who quit their jobs, dubbing it the Great Resignation. Some industries were hit especially hard, like leisure and hospitality jobs, which historically offer low pay. Today, where we live, we talk about the workplace and learn why so many people have decided to quit their jobs. 4.3 million Americans in August did just that. Are you one of them? You can join us. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at where we live. My guest this hour on Zoom is Carla Miller. She's a Washington Post columnist giving workplace advice. Carla, welcome to the show. Lucy, thank you so much for having me. I mentioned this term, the great resignation. Where did that come from? And is it still applicable right now in November 2021? Well, the the term, the great resignation, it was coined by Anthony Klotz, a professor. I, I hope I got his name right. A professor at um, um, Texas A&M, uh, business, business professor, um, to, to describe this phenomenon where people are voluntarily leaving jobs. Now, a lot of people were laid off um, during the pandemic, at the start of the pandemic, especially as businesses closed or they had to furlough employees to, uh, to save on costs. But the great resignation refers to people who are voluntarily leaving uh, for better jobs or just leaving behind the jobs they had, or maybe they were pushed into early resignation or laid off and then decided they just really didn't want to go back to that life. So who are the people we're talking about? I mentioned leisure and hospitality, which, you know, historically, the pay is not great. The hours can be long. Uh, as we hear, uh, there's lots of customer rage these days that doesn't add to uh, the job benefits, uh, so to speak. But are you hearing from not only them, but also, I guess, traditional office workers who are like, you know what, maybe it's time for me to question my relationship with work. And what are they telling you? That's exactly right. Yes, I'm, I've been hearing from people in you know who are not on the the front lines of dealing with COVID. They're not in healthcare or education, retail, hospitality, food service. They are in office jobs, and they're they're realizing since they've been many of them working remotely, they'd like to continue working remotely, and then their their employers want them to come back to the office, and so they're not uh, they're not keen on that. And then some of them have just had sort of a pause during the pandemic to really think about what they want from life, what they value in life. You know, we, we've all sort of realized life is short, life is precious, and we have a limited amount of time um, to live it. So they're realizing they don't want to spend it in a job that 
does not adequately reward them for their effort and doesn't give them a sense of purpose. If you're one of those people, you can join us. We'd love to hear from you about the decisions that you've made over the last 19 months, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So we saw how so many of us had to adapt when the pandemic hit and there was a lockdown and companies uh, had to innovate and workers had to uh, were working remotely and we, we proved that we could all do the work uh, from home for the people who had the luxury of being able to work from home, Carla. So now that we're coming around and it seems like the pandemic, you know, it's not as bad as it once was. When we, when we talk about employers and, and how they're adapting, why are they having a hard time um, having people come back to work? Well, um, em- employers that want employees to come back, um, they, they argue it, it creates better collaboration. It's easier to have everybody, you know, in one place working together where they can bounce ideas off each other. Uh, they may also have, you know, commercial leases that that are going unused because they need to uh, they need to um, fill the fill these office buildings that they've been renting. Um, but people are resisting it because they're finding when they work remotely, they're as productive as they were before, possibly even more productive than they were before, and they're. Um, they, they have fewer distractions. They have better balance overall. They don't have to deal with that grueling commute. So it's just they're more focused and engaged with their work than they had been. And they, they don't want to give that up. And they're trying to make the argument that they, they shouldn't have to. So, But you're asking about why, why are companies having trouble? Is it having trouble getting them back in the office? Or is it just hiring trouble in adapting? General. Oh, hiring people back. Um, yeah, if if companies are not willing to continue offering that same flexibility in hours and locations of where they work. Um, fewer workers are interested in, in working for them. It's, um, it's, it's hard for them to, uh, hard for them to conceive of going back to that life once they've sort of tasted a more flexible alternative way to do it. Uh, when we think about uh, you know other uh, periods in the last, I guess, uh, gosh, almost two decades now, this does feel very different from uh, back when there was the recession in 2008. You know, people were desperate to come back to work, and it was a different turnaround. And so now it seems like employees have the upper hand, and it's the employers that really have to woo people and, and think about you know how to make the workplace not only more welcoming, but to meet employees where they are. That's exactly right. Yes. Um, During the recession, it was the employers definitely had the upper hand. Now it is employees. The pendulum has kind of swung back in their favor. It's competitive out there. There are many jobs and not as many people willing to to fill them if they don't meet all of their needs. Employees are asking, well, what can you do for me? You know, will you allow me to to have balance? Will you allow me to have a sense of purpose? Will you pay me adequate wages and and benefits so that I can actually make a living at this job um, and not have to give my entire life to it? And employers that either can't afford, maybe you know, not every not every employer can afford to start giving out raises, and so if they can't compete with other employers that are offering higher wages, um, that that puts them at a disadvantage. If it's a job where you can't work remotely, it's not it's not an office job. It's it's an in-person on the ground job. Um, You have to get more creative about what kinds of other benefits you're you're able to offer to entice people to come work for you. 
Is there also a generational divide, Carla, um, when we think about the people who are deciding to quit or find a new job that fits, uh, you know, what they see are priorities in their life now, as we've all rethought about what's important to us during the pandemic? I mean, who have you spoken with and do you think there's a trend there? You know, it's funny. There, there is a narrative that, uh, oh, it's the Zoomers, the Gen Z um, and young millennials who are who are leading this charge out of the workplace um, because they, you know, they they haven't been in the workforce long enough and they, you know, they want things to go their way. But it's actually I'm hearing from a lot of people who are mid-career or close to retirement who have reached the same sort of epiphany about their work-life balance and realizing that there is another way to do it. We don't have to accept the way we've been doing it for decades. And we have we have the technology to be more flexible. And so they are really rethinking what they've always kind of accepted as, you know, what they have to take to, to keep to keep a livelihood and sort of challenging that and looking at new opportunities. So while it's, you know, y- younger workers are always going to be at the forefront of a major change and disruption, it's actually spanning generations. And it's a lot of a lot of folks who would not have jumped ship on a job before um, for any, you know, for, for just any reason. And now they're realizing that uh, it's it's not worth it for them to stick around. You can join our conversation. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Rich had called in from North Haven, wanted to share that he quit his job as a social media specialist because it was too toxic. Now he's a hockey coach enjoying life off the Internet. Um, And so I wanted you to just respond to that, Carla. Well, yeah, I can see I can see, you know, giving up one, you know, really giving up a violent, active, you know, bloody pastime and turning to hockey instead. I mean, that totally makes sense to me. <laughs> um, no, that's uh, that's great. And a lot of people are changing, changing their outlook, changing careers, um, realizing that what they've always been doing is, you know, was fine, but it doesn't really fulfill them. And so they're turning to other activities, other other jobs, other industries that appeal more to them and, you know, give them a chance to feel like they're really engaged and that they're giving back. Again, you can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. Uh, we talked a little bit about how employers are adapting, uh, Carla. And so uh, thinking again about uh, this hybrid model uh, versus the five-day week, you know, is that something that we're going to see less uh, and less of in terms of, again, trying to adapt to what employees want? Um Possibly. It, you know, it, again, it depends on the workplace. It depends on the, the nature of the job. And, you know, some jobs, again, you, you really kind of need to be there in person for, you know, security reasons or client service reasons. You need to have somebody actually in the building. But, yeah, there's been a lot of talk about moving to a four-day work week, shortening our work days and shortening our weeks. Um, the 40-hour work week uh, came about because, you know, we needed to put a limit on the time people were spending on assembly lines and working dangerous machinery and doing physical labor. And a lot of times, a lot of studies are showing that people in desk jobs doing information management, for example, um, don't even need a full 40 hours to accomplish 
the, these jobs. They can get it done in six hours a day instead of eight hours a day. And then actually after a certain point, you start getting diminishing returns on that work if you try to push yourself beyond that mental load. So there, there, there are voices calling for, for shorter work weeks and more hybrid work weeks and less, um, yeah, less of this nine to five in office model. Can we back, get back to, uh, you know, at the top of the hour, I mentioned uh, leisure and hospitality. You know, when we think about the types of jobs that uh, people have uh, filled, but, you know, these are jobs that traditionally are paying low wages and, you know, the benefits are slim to none. And so as we think about uh, these labor shortages, you know, you know, can workplaces afford to increase wages? Because when you talk to some uh, business owners, they claim they cannot. Right. And uh, not being a business owner myself, I, I don't have a good uh, grasp of of what it takes and, and whether it really is feasible to raise wages. I mean, a large corporation with many franchises is probably better positioned to make that kind of call and make that kind of offer. But small business owners are, are struggling because they're they're paying what they can pay. They need ha- they need hands to help them run the business a certain number of hours a day, but they're used to paying a certain amount for a certain number of hours, and now they're suddenly being asked to pay more to keep up with uh, to keep up with other employers, to keep up with larger corporations who can afford to pay fifteen dollars an hour or more. And these smaller businesses who you know may- maybe were operating on pretty thin margins to start with, you know, as many restaurants are just don't have the resources to be able to offer more unless they make some other changes, raise their prices, um, you know, make other cutbacks. So I'm sympathetic. It is hard for small business owners to, uh, to, to make this kind of quick change and suddenly start competing um, with, uh, with other employers. Their best bet is to find other ways to compensate, even if they can't pay more money, they can offer more reliable, predictable schedules to workers. Um, the just-in-time scheduling is is really hard on hospitality and retail workers, where they're they get notice, you know, a few hours before their shift starts, or you know, le- less than 24 hours before the shift starts, they're told they have to come into work and they have to scramble to find childcare, or you know, make other make other accommodations in their day. So employers that can offer more reliable, predictable hours or offer just sort of a better overall quality of life may be able to help compensate for the fact that they can't pay as much in in wages. Again, you can join us, uh, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter, uh, at Where We Live. Again, we'd love to hear from you about how you've rethought your relationship with work. Uh, I want to take a, a quick call, I believe, from someone in Glastonbury. Uh, Mudasir, uh, hello, this is uh, Where We Live, and this is Lucy that's speaking with you. Can you hear me? Yes, Lucy, this is Mudasir. I am from Glastonbury. Uh, what, wonderful. Tell us what, you, tell us what you've uh, decided and the changes you've made. All right. Um, so I was a operation manager slash manager for the Home Depot in my town in Glastonbury. So I knew a lot of people in the community. Uh, a, lot of them, a lot of my customers were my uh, uh, neighbors. So I, I saw the whole pandemic go through uh, my town, right? So from 
starting the store, uh, coming in, uh, getting so many emails saying that, hey, uh, I can't come to work, I'm too afraid. So this is like, we're talking March of 2020. And by the time we're in June, uh, you know, we put up all the barriers, we made signs, we put, you know, floor markers. And at the same time, I'm still going to work, right? And, and there were so many myths, so many different uh, situations, like uh, the company is telling us, hey, you don't have to wear a mask. And then the next week, we, got, we all have to wear a mask. And the following week, it's like, don't have to wear a mask. Now go take your temperature. So there were so many different things that were changing consistently. But the one thing that was really surprising was the amount of sales. Like the volume of sales just skyrocketed. It was just tremendous the amount of people that were just coming in every day just to shop because they were all working from home at this point. Um, so the other thing that as a manager, uh, we – we manage the store because it's such a large operation that we have a lot of metrics that we follow, like from customers' happiness, how how happy is the transaction uh, towards the cashiers, um, how timely we were to fulfill an order for an online order that was done. So there was a lot of metrics that was going on. However, uh, those metrics did not jive. Like th- those metrics just fell apart. It was like terrible. It's the worst metric in our entire. 20 years in this store. However, our sales volume was just phenomenal. You can see the customers were very happy. Uh, so at that time, uh, I started to, you know, call upper management and say like, hey, regional person, et cetera, et cetera. None of this metric that we are using is helping us. It's actually getting in the way of us doing business, uh, getting to our associates. So this is where my frustration started. And I'm like, you know what? They are not listening. Like, U.S. corporation is not listening. They're not looking at uh, the feedback from the ground. Uh, and I think that's where, that's what motivated me to start looking around into something that I can do and something that I could actually shape uh, into, uh, into my own future. And I, and I, and I after uh, a success, successful 20 months during the COVID-19, uh, I, I got an opportunity to open my own business now, uh, and I now deliver packages for Amazon in those blue vans, and, and, and I know that's the future, and, and I'm not having a hard time finding help, and I think that's because uh, the workforce that was working in retail stores are now starting to go like, hey, you know what, there's other opportunities, like delivering packages. So I think it, we're just going through a shift. Right. Mudasir, thank you for sharing that with us. And I'm glad that uh, you decided uh, what was right for you and what worked for you. I thought it was interesting, uh, Carla, as Mudasir was talking all about metrics, metrics. What about the people doing the work, the humans uh, that are dealing with the higher volume, the higher stress? Customers are happy, but it sounds like uh, what was left out of that equation was how Mudasir and his colleagues uh, were feeling uh, during this time. Yes, and that, that is a common refrain I've been hearing is um, people's frustrations with management and corporate headquarters and whether they were being listened to, whether their concerns were being heard, you know, saying, oh, we're being overworked, we need more staff, or, you know, I, you know, I need more hours or fewer hours, it's, it, it's too much, or we don't feel safe in this environment. Um, Mudasir mentioned, you know, changing changing guidelines on masks and distancing and, and temperature taking. And a lot of employees were 
legitimately afraid because they were being asked to go into unsafe environments and not being given appropriate guidelines or even equipment to allow them to protect themselves um, and sort of prevent the spread of COVID. So, you know, the management turning a stone ear to all those to all those complaints and concerns really left a bad taste in employees' mouths. And that's why so many like Mudasir are opting to go work for themselves or go, go work a, a more more of a gig type um, a, a gig type job because it gives them they, they feel it gives them a little more control over their hours in the situations they allow themselves to be in. We're going to talk more about that uh, right after the break. You're hearing Carla Miller here on Where We Live. She's a Washington Post columnist giving workplace advice as we talk about changes to the labor market in the pandemic. Uh, As we heard, it's not only about wages. After the break, we talk about why Americans who've decided to quit their jobs for the other reasons, like Mudasir and others. You can join us, too. We'd love to hear your story, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, there's been a long time shortage of workers to fill Connecticut manufacturing jobs, even before the pandemic. We'll hear from an aerospace manufacturer who says more employers should consider training people who've been formerly incarcerated. That's later. Now, we've been talking about the number of Americans who've chosen to leave their jobs, some economists dubbing this period the Great Resignation. How the last 19 months made you question your relationship with your current job. Are you looking for a new job or recently started one? We want to hear from you. You can join us 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. My guest today is Carla Miller, a Washington Post columnist who gives workplace advice. Uh, Before we talk more about um, some of the other reasons Americans are quitting 
and uh, also the um, maybe the attraction to a gig work, so to speak. Carla, you touched on that before the break. You know, I wanted to bring up when we think about you know these big decisions uh, that are being made in terms of you know should I uh, stay with this job that's making me miserable or should I find something else? You know, we know in this country that you know our work is tied to having benefits like stable health insurance. And so when uh, you're talking with people, how are they you know thinking about that? when they're deciding whether or not to leave their current job. That, that definitely is a big concern. I've heard from a number of people who would really like to leave their current jobs, but maybe they have health conditions or, or families who depend on them having access to health care. And because their benefits are tied to their jobs, they, they can't just jump out of the job and go look for something else. They have to make sure that they have you know, another, another solid platform to land on so that they can continue their benefits. Um, people who have been laid off uh, during the pandemic um, or furloughed or, or what, what, laid off and lost their jobs also lost access to health care benefits. And they're having to figure out how to, how to manage. Um, some, some of them are going on the, uh, the Affordable Care Act healthcare exchange and and finding plans to cover them some of them are opting for for cobra coverage which is really expensive but it's it's the best option available to them the ones who are closer to retirement age might um, qualify for medicare so they're they're trying to hang on until they reach that point but it is it is a major factor in a lot of people's concerns about leaving their jobs or changing their careers. Um, even if they're thinking about moving to gig work, they still don't have that, that sort of anchor of healthcare benefits uh, available to them through the job if they, if they take a gig job. Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. And so uh, when we think about people who are quitting and what their next steps are, can you talk about that in terms of, you know, are people more likely to do this if, say, you know, there's another head of household who's making a steady income? And what does this mean for people? Um, you know, it's just themselves that they're supporting. You know, how can they swing this, Carla? You know, I'm darned if I know. <laughs> In some cases, yes, it, it is much easier if you have a partner at home who has a steady job, who has health care. You, you have that anchor. Some people have families um, that they can move in with who uh, can help support them financially and give them a roof over their heads while they while they figure out their next steps and and get their feet under them. But there there are quite a few people who, who don't have those those uh, safety nets available to them um, so they're they're having to get really creative about how uh, ways to sp- save money um, how to uh, how to cut back expenses and other ways to generate income um, again sometimes taking on multiple multiple side gigs just to sort of fill in the gaps and make sure they meet their expenses uh, some have have benefited somewhat from government benefits um, child tax credit has been helpful to, to some workers I've heard from. And uh, the, early on when we had pandemic relief, unemployment benefits that were boosted um, by, by COVID relief bills early on, that was helpful to a number of people in, in sort of building up savings and making ends meet while they prepared for the next step. So it's not everyone is having the great success um, changing over. I've heard from some folks who are really living living on the edge. Um, they they're homeless or on, they're on the verge of becoming homeless 
because they can't make ends meet um, and because they can't find a good job with wages. And it, it, it really is a struggle for them. Again, you can join us 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Chris is calling in from Hartford. Chris, what did you want to share? Um, I retired at the end of May um, in 2020, and that decision um, was not totally driven by COVID, but it was similar to what some of your other callers have talked about in terms of other um, work environment uh, influences. I, I had been with the company for 31 years and had intended to work for two more years until my daughter aged off of my health insurance, but um, found myself working for a manager who was very autocratic, which is not the normal style of my company, and just really started thinking about whether it was worth it to continue for two more years or whether I should be looking at other options. So basically, I confirmed that my daughter could get good medical insurance through her school, and I confirmed with my financial advisor that that my assumptions about my own financial situation for retirement were sound and that I wasn't overlooking anything major that that could uh, negatively influence that. Fortunately, I I had just turned 65, so I was old enough to qualify for Medicare, so I didn't have to worry about uh, medical insurance. But basically, after after confirming that those couple of financial aspects were going to be okay, um, I did go ahead um, and give my notice to retire. Like I say, the primary driver was not COVID, but... Um, the timing definitely was influenced by the fact that my employer was encouraging us already to come back into the office at least part-time um, in a cubicle environment that was didn't feel very safe to me. Um, and so that, that was part of the picture, but, but there was more to it. Well, thank you, Chris, uh, for sharing, uh, again, uh, some of the decisions and and factors that you had to consider uh, before uh, retiring. I want to take another call, Dakota in Brantford. Dakota, what did you want to share or ask? Dakota, can you hear us? Hi, yeah, thank you. Yes, I can. Sorry, thank you. I I wanted to mention the industry of healthcare, which has really gone through um, you know, a tremendous stress um, working through the pandemic. Um, and I'm wondering if you have heard or talked to healthcare workers. Um, I'm a nurse midwife in New Haven, and we certainly have felt not only the stress of working through a pandemic, the incredible mistrust in um, healthcare that has kind of like come around with vaccine resistance and um, just inf- misinformation just in general about healthcare and, and the pandemic, um, which has been incredibly stressful. And that, and then on top of that, a huge nursing shortage um, in this country, and certainly where we work and live. And so, I'm wondering if you've heard from healthcare people, um, and then you know, and just comments about that in our industry. Thank you, Dakota, for your question. Carla Miller from the Washington Post. Uh, yes, I, I have heard from healthcare workers. That's that's one of the hardest hit industries throughout this pandemic. I mean, it was. Working in healthcare was was difficult to begin with, and with the pandemic, it's just it it's exponentially gotten worse. Um, 
there's high levels of burnout, as you say, dealing with uh, vaccine resistant patients or patients who, uh, who resist care or who, who don't, um, who don't follow the science. And then of course the high volume of, you know, three quarters of a million people who have died and healthcare workers have had to be there to, um, to hold their hands um, at the end when they couldn't get access to their families, that, that sort of thing just, um, it, it, it leads to heavy burnout and it's crushing. And I've heard from a number of people in healthcare who have just, you know, it, they, they, they can't take much more of it. They've been looking to other, um, other industries, again, other jobs, shifting their careers to take on other jobs so that they can uh, sort of preserve, preserve their own health and their own well-being. They've, they've carried so much weight and so much stress through all of this. And now, um, it's, it, it, they've reached a crisis point. So, um, yes, I have heard from healthcare workers, quite a few who are burned out and need to move on. Some who have become traveling nurses because you can make more money that way. But again, it involves travel, which is an additional risk. And then, you know, I'm concerned about after, you know, the dust settles, once we get the virus more under control, What's going to happen to healthcare? What's going to be left when the dust settles? How many people? How, how many shortages are we going to have to deal with in general healthcare because of what we've been through? Again, you can join us again eight 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 seven two zero nine six seven seven, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live as we talk about why people are choosing to quit their jobs, reevaluate their relationship with work, uh, finding a job that better suits their priorities, their lifestyle. Now, as the pandemic has shown us that uh, you know every day is not guaranteed. Again, the number eight 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 seven two zero nine six seven seven, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You know, in the past, Carla, there was this, uh, you know, worry or concern that if you quit your job, especially women um, felt this concern, and there was a gap on your resume, that that can impact your ability to find a new job down the road. Is that also changing? In some ways, yes, it is. Um, it used to be you didn't want to have a spotty work history. You didn't want to show short-term jobs one after the other that indicated you might not be reliable or that employers didn't want to keep you around for very long. But I, you know, over the, just over the last couple of years, in 2020, 2021, if your resume has a gap in it, uh, employers are likely to understand this. Oh, that was during the bad times. Yes, understood. And that's when people are taking whatever they can to get by in some cases. They need to find filler jobs or maybe they were trying new new paths to see if they worked out better for them or you know, changing, new, changing careers entirely. So if you have those kinds of little little hitches and detours in your resume for this two-year period, probably it's, it's not going to be as much of a concern as it would have been you know, in previous times. Then again, uh, a lot of women in particular have been hard hit by the pandemic. Job losses among women, particularly, particularly among black and brown women, have, have outpaced job losses among men, and the recovery has been much slower um, in many cases because these, many of these women are mothers. They can't find childcare, um, and they, they needed to back off of their jobs so they could help their kids through school or look after family members who, who might be sick or need care and couldn't get it elsewhere. So that is a, that is a gap. That is a job loss that 
may not be as easy to recover from. Uh, women have lost a lot of ground during this pandemic professionally, and it's it, it remains to be seen how long it's going to take to, to make up for lost time. Amy from New Britain, I wanted to share because we'd brought up uh, the the whole health insurance question and that, you know, can impede people sometimes from uh, taking the next step because they need uh, health insurance. Uh, Amy sharing that Bernie Sanders version of Medicare for all would address uh, these concerns. And I wanted you to talk more about that, uh, Carla, especially again, we think about people transitioning to gig work and having more flexibility. But yet again, there's the health insurance question. Well, I, I'm certainly not qualified uh, to, to speak to anyone, uh, any, any one plan or another um, as being better than another. But what I have observed is, yes, people, we need some kind of solution that detaches healthcare from employment and detaches healthcare from marriage. Um, up to this point, you've had to have a good job to get good healthcare or you've had to be married to the right person. Um, and so people have been reluctant to to leave bad jobs or, or leave bad marriages because they need access to good health care. If they had an independent source of health care that was affordable and was accessible and portable to them, no matter where they went, they would be more mobile. They'd have more freedom to, to find suitable jobs, um, you know, may, maybe take some risks in their careers as opposed, as opposed to sticking with the job they're unhappy with because of that. So, um, it, and, and it occurs to me that employers not having to offer health insurance, that, that would be a reduced expense for them as well. But then again, health insurance is a benefit that helps attract and retain workers. So there's this, <laughs> there's this constant tension, I, I, I think. But generally, I think people having independent access to health care that they can afford themselves would be better for them overall and offer more freedom and more mobility in the workplace. Uh, before uh, we head to break, you know, I wanted to uh, quote uh, economist Daniel Alpert over at uh, Cornell and also at Westwood uh, Capital. Um, he wasn't available to join us today, but he shared this in the, the New York Times recently, uh, writing, the chronic problem we face as we put COVID-19 in the rearview mirror is the U.S. economy before the pandemic was incredibly dependent on an abundance of low-wage, low-hours jobs. And it was this combination that yielded low prices for comfortably middle-class and wealthier customers and low labor costs for bosses, but also spectacularly low incomes for tens of millions of others. And Carla, I wanted to hear your response to that, because when we think about the last 19 months and, and what uh, this time has taught us, you know, this, uh, this reliance on or this expe expectation that some Americans should just take low quality, low pay work. You know, will the labor market change in any way? Um, will we see some long term impact here? Well, again, uh, I'm not an economist, so I'm, I'm hesitant to make predictions about what will happen. But uh, yeah, I agree that there has it, the pandemic has exposed huge inequities between um, upper income uh, workers, lower income workers, and how much we depend on these lower income workers to, to do jobs like meatpacking and uh, supply chain work, delivery, manufacturing. Um, how many of these underpaid jobs we really rely on to keep our costs down and 
with the pandemic, we've seen how much that is hurting a significant portion of our population. People cannot afford to get by, um, even when they're working a full-time job or multiple jobs, trying to, to get enough income together. A minimum wage job, 40 hours a week, is not enough to afford typical apartment rent in the United States. And it's certainly not enough to raise a family of four. So th- there are a lot of a lot of issues that I think we are being forced to face about what our minimum wage is, what we expect from low-paid workers, what is a living wage, what is going to allow people to not only survive but thrive um, with their jobs. And I, I can't predict whether whether we will face up to that or whether we'll just kind of gloss over it and forget it as the urgency dies away. But I hope we will face it and I hope we will pay attention and make changes to to right these issues. That's Carla Miller, a columnist with The Washington Post. Uh, Coming up, we're going to hear from Jackie Gallo, who's chief operating officer at Woodcraft Group. This is an aerospace manufacturer uh, looking at the labor shortage head on. Uh, She's worked to employ formerly incarcerated residents in her workplace. We're going to hear from her after a short break. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been talking about workplace changes in the pandemic. My next guest had a need for workers, so her company looked to hire people who'd been formerly incarcerated. Jackie Gallo joins us, Chief Operating Officer at Whitcraft Group, a Connecticut-based, or rather uh, one of several states uh, that has an aerospace manufacturing presence at Whitcraft. Uh, Jackie, welcome to our show. Hi, thank you for having me. Good morning. So you work in Connecticut, but the company also has uh, offices in other states. So talk through to us uh, when you look at this longtime uh, manufacturing uh, shortage uh, in our state, a a workforce to fill open jobs. What made you think about the incarcerated population? Well, we started uh, partnering with the state and and, um, the, the local prison in 2018. The idea came from our sister site in Newburyport, Massachusetts. They actually had a long-term partnership with a local prison there that was working pretty well. Um, So I actually reached out through general like uh, website mail and tried to get connected with the um, prisons in the state. Um, And then a woman um, reached back out to me in 2018 and we decided to partner to employ um, those who were currently incarcerated while they're incarcerated and um, they get released during the day on work release or furlough. Um, And at the time before COVID, we were growing significantly. Um, And so I was looking to hire, I was a general manager of the Eastford facility. And um, we we were hiring um, all kinds of people, but um, this program was one source of a pipeline that I saw as a win-win both creating opportunities for people who normally would not have that opportunity and helping um, the business to grow where it needed to grow. 
And so what types of jobs uh, were they being trained to do? And then, you know, when we think about um, sustaining this, uh, when they were able, uh, when they were completely out of, of prison, you know, how has that worked and how did your current employees respond? Um, so the jobs that they are doing are factory work uh, jobs that are in a clean, uh, safe environment, well-lit, team-based culture, um, but they're hands-on roles that are uh, working with metal. We're making aircraft engine parts. Um, some of the roles are machinists. Some of them are what we call sheet metal mechanics. Some of them are called uh, flow line technicians, but basically they're working with their hands to move metal to create parts. Um, we were providing the training and paying them while they were being trained. Um, this is a partnership that we did with the prison, but also to your point, when they get released, our intention is that they continue to work for us. Um, and it's an investment in our part and also in the individuals. Um, so we we look to this to be you know a long-term uh, career for them. Um, we put we give them opportunities just like anybody else. They're paid the same way. They're offered full benefits. Um, and when they get released, we hope they continue to stay with us. And they also would have the opportunity to post internally to grow into other roles um, and compete just like any other employee. Um, I also, more recently, we've been working with halfway houses across the state and sober houses um, to try to um, offer these opportunities to those who are already released and transitioning back into society. And currently between that initiative and the um, partnership with the prison, we have well over 30 people in the state of Connecticut working for us. And that's just who I'm aware of that has a uh, previous mm -hmm. criminal you know, history. Mm -hmm. And how did your employees, uh, your current employees, how did they respond uh, when you talked about, you know, this partnership with uh, local prisons? So when I first introduced the idea in 2018, I did a lot of roundtables with the employees in the Eastford facility. Um, at the time, we had 400 employees um, to, to introduce the idea and get their thoughts on it. There was a lot of trepidation about it. Um, there was concern around safety of the um, people that were working uh, in the facility um, currently. And, um, you know, we talked through it. Um, I assured them that we um, had a pretty robust program and situation for looking at what the risks were. Um, the state, the, the prison and the um, state resources, they have a pretty thorough vetting process for those who they would even get to the point to recommend for the second chance program. And then beyond that, um, we walked the facility and we kind of identified what hazards or risks there might be. So I think, you know, I basically left it with the employees, like, let's wait. Can you just wait and see? And like, let's try it. And if it's not going well, or if um, people are concerned at all, once the people are on the ground and they get to meet them, then we'll stop the program. Um, but that actually never happened. And in fact, it went the other way. Um, fast forward about six months from when we first started the partnership, actually um, the employees were on the total opposite side of it. And today um, I actually have employees that are working with those who have been released and are now in society 
um, and maybe they don't have a car or whatever. And I have employees that are picking them up every morning and bringing them to work and trying to support their career growth and um, and their family and, and community. It sounds like the right transition that, that people need because we know that you know there is stigma uh, with uh, people giving uh, those who may have been incarcerated a second chance. Uh, but you're seeing at your company that you know if you give them support and the right training that they're as valuable as the current employees that, that you've had for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, we have a couple of the gentlemen who were in the actual prison working in the work release with us in 2018 who are in lead leadership roles on the shop floor now um and they're getting married and they're thriving personally and also professionally so you know they're i always say look they're just individuals just like anybody else not every single one of them um has worked out but uh, many of them have and um i really think you know uh they're, when people have a criminal history or they find themselves in a situation where they're incarcerated through their own actions or maybe through environmental situation, um, look, they're uh, they served their time. They're given a sentence. They serve it. They get released. And unfortunately, um, they're not able to fully enter society in a meaningful way because um, because of the way employers look at them. And that to me is unfair. That's a lifetime sentence, which is not what they were um, issued to them when they when they went to prison. They should be able to reenter society just like anybody else. And that's where the second chance comes in. Jackie, we have under a minute, but you know, I was looking at the op-ed that you wrote for the Hartford Current, also data showing more than 6,000 open manufacturing jobs in Connecticut. Are you hearing from other uh, manufacturers in, in Connecticut that are interested in what you've done at Woodcraft? Absolutely. I've, I mean, since I've been in the media, I've gotten contacted by many employers who are asking me questions and also um, are interested. I would just encourage those who are thinking about doing this at all to just try it with a few individuals to start and see how it goes. I think you'll find that it's just like any other um, person that you would employ and um, you know, that, that there could be uh, even more meaningful um, uh, kind of breakthrough for those individuals that make them want to stay with the company. You've been hearing Jackie Gallo again, Chief Operating Officer at Woodcraft Group, uh, aerospace manufacturer. Thanks for your time, Jackie. Thanks so much for having me. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Katie Pellico was on the phones today. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>